couple Father's Days ago, I came home on like a Wednesday or Thursday after work, and my wife was pretty excited. Oh, my, yeah, it wasn't Sunday. It wasn't Father's Day. It was before Father's Day, but she got me a Father's Day gift. And she it was walking through the door, and you could tell she was excited about something, you know? And she goes, come on, come here, I want to show you something. I got, I got you something for Father's Day. It's on the back patio. And uh, so I put my backpack down. I, I uh, walked out there. And with a little bow on top was a brand new, like, propane barbecue um, for Father's Day. And I was like, babe, nice work. This is amazing. I said, where did you get it? And she said, I got it on Amazon. And I said, I didn't know, A, that they sold barbecue, barbecue grills, and B, that they sold them assembled. And she said, they didn't. Part of the gift was me putting it together. <laughs> and I said, I am impressed and also a little nervous about igniting gas through something that you built. So you can imagine my trepidation as I turned the knobs that she wanted me to turn while she sat safely away, and I'm nodding going, this is fantastic, I cannot wait. Is my will done? Have we filled that out? Have we had that completely signed? And lighting this gas grill. Anyways, um, I said, I began to ask questions like, did somebody, did you do it by yourself? Did your dad come over and help you? No, I did it myself. And oh, great. Um, she's smarter than me, so it's no surprise. Like, I, I would almost, I'd, to be fair, I would feel just as nervous if I had built it myself and lighting it for the first time, so it's not any slam against her. And uh, she goes, I had, it came with directions, obviously. And I said, you know, good for you. See, that's the difference between me and her, is that she uses directions when they come in a box. And so with something as important as gas lines and everything like that, like, I, I get it. And my, my response is always, directions are for people who want to get it right the first time. That's the thing that directions are for. Directions are for people who don't want to know the joy of reassembling something. That's what directions are for. Um, and very few things in life offer some sort of a redo button, right? Um, if, if she had messed up on the gas grill, if something didn't work, if it didn't ignite, if it didn't say, we could disassemble it and put it back together, and you'd have this, like, fresh start. Um, and yet, so many things in life, like, there are no redo buttons, and yet we don't follow directions, and we, we know that you only have one shot at a first marriage. Your parenting plan is completely one way. I mean, there's no way to be like, can I do sixth grade over again? I really screwed up with this kid. It was a bad year. Uh, there are, there are sometimes no redo buttons when it comes to missed career opportunities. Um, there, you get to an age where you're like, I wanted to do that, but now I can't. And now that door is completely closed. And it's no matter of going back to school or learning something. That's just, I just won't do that in my life. And I need to just resolve that and be okay with it. Uh, most of our regrettable financial purchases come without a return policy. There are no redos a lot of times when it comes to things that you've purchased that you go, Wish I wouldn't have bought that, right? That's why we shop at Costco, because they have some sort of a very liberal return policy. Did you guys see this week somebody returned their Christmas tree to Costco, and they took it back? It was dead? And you're like, Costco, we love you. Thank you. The one, so that's my caveat to that phrase, is there, there are a few things. But for the most part, um, if you try to take your car back to the dealership a month or a year after you purchased it, they would say, 
well, you can trade it in for something nicer and newer, but we're not going to give you your money back, you know? Um, there's, there's very few things in life that you could really just be like, uh, I want to do that again. Like, you've looked at pictures of yourself. Like, I've looked at pictures of myself and thought, when was I that skinny? I don't remember being that skinny before, right? And I wish if I could go back and then adjust the diet or adjust to this, or when did I have that much hair or anything like that? It, it all it all happens at some point, and, and we realize that there's not a lot of redos in that, that our number of beginnings are, are shorter and fewer and far between. And with maturity, as a result of that, as a result of experiencing life in that way, we begin to, as we get older, value the uh, idea or the sense of beginnings. Um, that's why when we look at a new child, whether it's our child that's being born or a friend's child or a family member's or your son's child or you have a grandchild and you look in the eyes of a small child, you see what you see is what innocence, but then also like potential. Like this child has so much incredible potential. We value beginnings when we see that. Or if you've ever taken a new job, maybe this is a new year and it's a new job thing for you and, and um, you moved here or uh, you, you are moving elsewhere or something like that. And anytime you, anytime you enter into into a new job, there's a sense of, okay, I could create, maybe not a new career, but just even a new, just a new place, a new environment, new coworkers. There's a sense of valued beginnings or a new relationship. If you ever talk to somebody who's in a new relationship, the glow that they have, uh, the, 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 when they begin to describe this type of a person and what they've done together and how they met and how many minutes they've talked on the phone to each other and all the different Facebook messages and all that kind of stuff, there's a joy that comes with new beginnings in relationships and new lifestyle decisions. And the goal anytime that now we have new beginnings, for those of us who have um, experienced enough of life, I'm assuming everybody in this room, the goal is to make sure this time doesn't end up like last time sometimes, right? Our goal in life whenever we... We're, Beginnings are so few and far between. I want to make sure, and, and, and a new year is an especially great time to do that because these resolutions are taking place, whether it's eating habits or lifestyle habits, or I'm going to watch less TV, I'm going to read more books, or I'm going to, uh, whatever. I, I, I want to make this year better than last year. I want to make this opportunity that I have, this new beginning, better than the last one that I had. I want to make this marriage better than the last marriage that I had. I want this kid to be better. No, just kidding. You wouldn't do it when it comes to kids, but for the most part, we have this effort to make this time better than last time. And in spite of our best intentions, this comes inherent with a problem. And the problem is simply this, that we learn from our mistakes in the areas that matter least. And unfortunately, on the flip side, we repeat our mistakes in the areas that matter most. In the areas that matter least, we learn quickly. Do you remember the first time that you, that iPhone started doing group messaging and you're like, you're, you're starting to figure out how to add people to the conversation and get people out. And if you've ever sent something that you thought was an individual text to a group text and you thought, oh, wow, I'll never do that again. You learned in that way. Um, about three years ago, we were in a staff meeting and here at church, and uh, it was Chris and Gary and a couple of other guys, and I had said something about um, a funny meme that I had seen, which are those pictures with the words on them. You know, it doesn't, right? But instead of calling it a meme, it, it's spelled M-E-M-E, -M -E, and I called it, I said, did you guys see that funny meme that <laughs> came out? And they looked at me trying to discern, was I, was I trying to be funny? I have that kind of personality sometimes. Like, was that intentional or was that, oh, no, no, that was legit. Okay, oh my gosh. You know it's just meme, right? 
Yeah, of course I do. I, I, was, I didn't know if you guys knew that. But yeah, that's, that's hilarious though, isn't it? Never have I done that ever again. You learn. We learn from the things in life that, ma- that matters nothing. I mean, it's embarrassing, but it's nothing, right? And yet we repeat our mistakes in the areas that sometimes matter most. It's so painful. Listen, um, because I'm a pastor, people, um, people come to me for advice or, or even, not just advice, but they just tell me about lifestyle stuff. And, and it's kind of my job for, for the people who call East Lake home to be able to be, to be invested in people's life, to hear how things are going, to be a sounding board. And if nothing, I'm not really that great of an advice giver. I'm more like a, just a listener right in that, in that moment. And I, I get to hear things and people go through you know, tragic circumstances and sometimes by their own volition, sometimes just because of happenstance of life. And, 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 and then they're trying to, trying to do better this next time. And yet um, it feels like sometimes as, as clear as it would be for me to learn from the mistakes of the past of the thing that you did last time, um, that it doesn't take place. And, and they just keep going and they keep doing these things. And I want to look in, in the eye and be like, You've, got, you've had lots of problems with this, and, and it seems like it's been a relationship struggle. And what's the common denominator in all your relationships? All of them involve you. Um, so I know it feels like I can't seem to find somebody who is worthy of my time or is a reasonable human being. And all of these, am I just, am I just, am I just meeting everybody, you know, which I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be involved with and whatever, and, and really struggling with that kind of thing. And I get it. I understand it. And so the, the point of this series, we're, we're doing a series called Beginnings, because I want to make sure that you take full advantage of any new beginnings that are in your life. I want you to, to make the changes uh, that matter most, um, to, uh, to really approach things. I, I think there are incredible stories in Scripture of people who um, have... Uh, have a certain chance to do a, a brand new beginning and they, they make some changes. God works in them and allows them to be able to take full advantage of what God is leading them through. And here's why this is important for you. Here's why I think that this would be worth your time. We're going to be talking about this for uh, three or four weeks. And I think this is fruitful for you. Even if you're in a season where there's not a lot of new beginnings for you, um, life is full and has enough unavoidable pain. All right. Life by itself has enough unavoidable pain. It doesn't need our help in making the same stupid decisions over and over again and find ourselves in this position. And I don't want you looking back at your life with regret, thinking to yourself or saying to yourself, well, that, that could have been avoided. That could have been avoided if I would have just thought through things a little bit more, maybe that could have been avoided. So today I'm starting this thing off. Um, I want to talk about three myths or three different assumptions that it comes uh, that come with learning from our mistakes, or three different struggles that we, um, three different routines or ruts that we find ourselves in when it comes to beginnings. And today, um, there's a verse at the end. There's some some scriptural context at the end that we're going to draw to. But it's, this first part is going to be a little bit like psychological. It's going to be a little bit more. Um, like I'm trying to draw you in a little bit more and convince you why. So especially if you're um, like unfamiliar with the Bible or skeptical of church and all that kind of stuff, I think you're going to really like this. If you're like, dude, I need 
like several verses. I need to feel like I've, my mind has been blown by scripture. Um, my only encouragement to you would be, I don't think that you're going to, uh, you might not love today, okay? But the rest of the series, I promise you, give me a chance. Like I always say, give it a series. Don't, don't base it on one thing. This is a, we're building a case for an argument, right? And until you, until you and I agree that there's a problem, um, then no amount of looking for a solution in scripture there's no need to find a, a solution in there, or there's no felt need to do that. So that's my caveat for today. So I'm going to talk about three myths today. That's the title of uh, the talk, and a lot of it's not going to be any new information for you. I'm just sometimes, sometimes in life, we don't need new information. We just need to um, relook at and be re-inspired by information that we probably need to know. Nothing I say is going to be revolutionary. Be like, oh, I had never thought of that. I want you to be like, oh, that is so very true. And oh, I have been so blinded in my methodology and how I get there. I've been so caught up in the emotions. I think I do those things. And yet, if I was to really take an honest inventory of my life and my character and how I operate, that might be lacking in that way. So, um, and the idea is that if you're not aware of the assumptions you make, then you'll continue to make those exact same assumptions no matter who it is that you're getting involved with romantically or no matter where you find yourself going to work and who you call your boss. So number one is this. The first one is the experience myth. And the experience myth says this. Experience makes me a wiser person. Having gone through it once, I'm wiser for it. It's the idea that experience alone is enough to get me through. And just because I'm a little bit older and just because I've done it before means that I'll be better off as a result of all of this. The problem is this. The reality is that experience alone does not make you wiser. Experience alone makes you older. It makes you tired. It makes you poorer. And it makes you possibly lonelier. Experienced one time does not make you an expert. In fact, it doesn't make you very much different than the very first time that you do it. Evaluated experience makes you wiser. Okay? I'm, again, you're like, duh, I get this. This is not, I know, I know, I know. But think about it. In your life, the reason this is so important is because I, it's not enough to say, I've been there, I've done that. Have you really, though, taken a look at it and evaluated for yourself and gone, how is in moving forward, what could I do differently? Be taking the mental inventory and the time to really digest this and think about this. And you know this is true because you watch other people and they don't do this. You have friends and, you're thought, and you thought to yourself, you would think that they would do better this second time. And yet they're doing the same, they're repeating the same habits. They're repeating the same problems. They took the things from their first marriage that they hated and they, they probably never spent the time to fully evaluate that and then move forward. I'm, I'm doing a, um, uh, a divorce care class on Saturdays with a group of people. We're wa- reading through a book together that has been really enlightening for me in terms of uh, divorce and remarriage in the church. And a big piece of this that I've talked to them about on Saturdays as we meet together is um, regardless of the distance between whether this whole divorce thing is fresh or it's been a few years or whatever, if you've never really taken the time to learn from it, then unfortunately, you may carry, you may carry some of those assumptions into the next one. And I, I want to, life has enough unavoidable pain. I don't want you to experience it more than you have to. I want you to really process through this. And you need a safe place. You need safe people. And you need a place to evaluate the experience that you went through because evaluated experience makes you wiser. Experience alone is not enough. Number two is this, the no better myth. 
And no matter, no better myth says this. Well, since I know better, that means I'll do better. Since I know better, that means this next time, I know what I'm doing now. I didn't know what I was doing now. It's a little bit more, it's a little bit different than experience. This has to do with information. <clears throat> this comes under the false impression that I have learned new information that is going to affect my ability as if we were creatures who operate rationally 100% of the time. Though we know what we are supposed to do, we find ourselves not doing it. That's that phrase that Paul talks about over and over again in scripture. I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. I don't know the things I want to do. And, and we go, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. That's totally true. And we, we um, appreciate that in theory. But in practice, many times when we go into a new beginning, we, don't, we, we give ourselves too much credit. That's the problem with us. We think that we're smarter than we actually are and or we know the right answers if this was a quiz. And yet when we find ourselves in actual praxis of it, we find ourselves doing the thing that we don't want to do. Knowledge doesn't mean that I'll have the discipline to do better. And knowledge alone is no guarantee that you'll do better. And this is why your current bad relationship looks a lot like your bad relationship. And you found yourself saying again, what's wrong with all these people that I'm dating? I know I should do better. And the problem is that you pick them or they pick you and you say, yes, one of the two, there's a problem with this and you know better. I know better. I know this isn't the type of guy that I really want to be in a long-term relationship with. And yet I find myself choosing him over and over again. You say, you know better. So why are you picking him? You've had that, you've, you've had that conversation with your friends. This is, again, this is hard to see in the mirror, but this is so easy to see in the lives of people that you care about. Whether you're a parent of a teenager who's walking through some of this stuff, uh, whether you're a best friend of somebody who's, who's uh, gone through an emotional roller coaster when it comes to relationships or job stuff or job search or that uh, a loss of vocation, I don't know direction in life, I don't know where I'm supposed to be, I don't know what I'm doing here. You, you, you look at them and you can see it so clearly for them. You think, listen, you know what you ought to do, so why aren't you doing it? Because knowing better doesn't mean you have the wisdom, the strength, or the self-control to choose differently. It's not enough to know better. It's not enough to have experienced it once in a while or once before. It's something more. Can we agree that those two things are limited? Can we agree that those are assumptions that don't necessarily transcend us to an appropriate way of living? Lastly, the third one is this, the time myth. The idea that time is against me. Uh, and this is the idea that we find ourselves in uh, when we when we create or, or not create when we when we find ourselves in circumstances that require us to do you know a new beginning a new change a chance to do something different this time and we feel like we kind of need to rush into something why because time is after all against us I'm not getting any younger right all the other people my age. Everybody else who has, has kids at this age, everybody else who's been in their career long enough, everybody else who graduated college, everybody else who, who I know I'm going to see at my 10-year reunion, everybody else who, all these things, we, we look around and we'd be like, I got to get back in. I need, to, I need to do this fast because time, the clock is ticking on us. And we think, I've learned my lesson. I'm ready to jump back in. And every once in a while, you, you want to say, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. In this book that we've been reading for this divorce care group, one of the comments that comes as a, his last chapter is like letters that were written to him and he's offering pastoral counseling. He's an ex-pastor who now uh, writes and does divorce counseling. And he wants to make it very clear, listen, time is your 
Friend, you are not up against time. Time is your friend. We feel the opposite. We feel like we're running out of time. We feel like time is against me. I know better. I'm experienced now. But we don't really, we, we're not really there. Here's the thing about when people are in physical pain, it's so easy to see how self-absorbed they naturally become. People who are in physical pain naturally become self-absorbed. If you've ever had a migraine um, and, and, and it's you know, like everything around you, you become so self-absorbed and, and you don't want people, I don't want people to talk to me. I don't want the lights to be on. I don't want to, I just want to be by myself for, the, for those moments, right? Uh, and that, that's kind of natural to see. And, and we kind of give people the space to be like, he's hurting the kids. Dad doesn't really mean that. He, he loves you, I promise you. He's just in a lot of pain right now. If you could just kind of leave him alone in that way. And the same thing is true when it comes to emotional pain. That emotional pain leads us to become self-absorbed. And we lack really the clarity to be able to see clearly what we're supposed to do or who we should be listening to. Um, if you've ever talked to a friend who is going through some emotional struggle or emotional pain uh, to some degree, um, and you ask them how they're doing, uh, you realize you just open the floodgates because the conversation usually turns to be all about them. People who are emotionally hurting, their conversations revolve entirely almost around them. And for you as an outsider seeing it, you're going, I get it. I get it. I like, you want to have grace. You want to have empathy. But it seems like you want to talk about football and it still comes down to how she left me and, and he, you know, whatever. And you're like, I get it. And I want to have so much grace in those areas, but they become so self-absorbed. And I, I say that not from an egotistical standpoint. Please know that I don't think that they're thinking through this. It's just, you've seen it. This is just a standard thing. If you've ever been a part of a small group before, somebody's going through a really difficult season in life, they're emotionally hurting and they dominate the conversation. The whole thing is one-sided. And at the very end of the group, hour and a half into this, they look around the circle and be like, thanks guys, thanks for all your words of wisdom. I, got, I really got a lot out of it. And you sat there going, you talked the whole time. We never said anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, great, I'm so glad that you got something out of it, but it wasn't because of anything we said. It was entirely about you, and, and that's okay. In those moments when you are hurting, when you have not allowed enough time to pass, you will find yourself not really seeing clearly. We, again, we know this from the outside. It's so hard to see in the moment, and it's so hard to see in the mirror. But if you wait long enough, you'll be able to hear things later that you cannot hear now. You've gone through some things and you know that somebody was offering you advice, and in that moment, you could not hear them. I mean, physically you could, but you could not really register what they were saying. You could not fully understand or appreciate the wisdom of it because you were so consumed with your self-absorbed thoughts because you were hurting. You'll be able to hear from people later that you can't hear from now as well. People who you're like, I just can't talk to you right now. I'm hurting too much. There's too much... You're, you're connected to the person who hurt me, and so therefore, I got to disassociate myself. And yet, and yet, in light of that, we feel a pressure to jump back in sooner than we probably should. 
because we're not ready to hear the things that we need to be hearing and we're not ready to hear from the people we probably need to be hearing from. And yet we delude ourselves into thinking that the clock is ticking. I need to jump back in. The time is running out sort of myth. Those are three major common assumptions that can derail us from really engaging and living into the potential of the beginnings, I think, that God has for us. Now, when you look at Scripture, um, there are all kinds of opportunities. I, I feel like when I was, I was trying to evaluate stories of, and of, of narratives of individuals in Scripture who have had sort of like a first act um, and then some sort of a failure, and then God does something there, and then they come back out for like a second act, and they're like, okay, that's... That this is probably what they're famous for. This is probably what you know them for, this second act. And yet when you actually engage in scripture and read, you realize, oh, they had a season where um, it was about them or they were, they were very lost or they, were, they, they, they couldn't have gotten to this had they not failed in that way. A perfect example. Um, first off, a guy named Moses shows up in the Old Testament. Moses is a guy who was born... Um, basically into Pharaoh's home. I mean, there's a little backstory in there, but is raised by the daughter of the Pharaoh, who's the king of, 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 of that time, raised as an Egyptian. And yet he understands as he gets older that I look different. I may talk like an Egyptian, walk like an Egyptian, but there's something different about me um, that I don't see from the rest of the people in this household, right? My facial features are different. Um, and he, he realizes I have a Hebrew heritage. I have a, Jew, a Jewish heritage. Uh, and there's, there's this systemic Jewish slavery taking place in that kingdom. And he decides one day, I'm gonna do something about this. He kills an Egyptian and he basically gets banished, runs away from Pharaoh for fear of his life, spends 40 years wandering in a desert, wondering what, I, is, what is it that I'm exactly supposed to do? Super lack of clarity in that life. Had all the potential in the world, but was kind of, you could tell it was about him at that point. It wasn't really what God wanted him to do. He knew I'm gonna lead you into something different. Wanders in the desert for 40 years, then gets called by God and says, I'm gonna have you be the, type, the person who goes and approaches Pharaoh and talks about how these people have been chosen by God. I'm pulling them out. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm enacting a rescue plan for my people who've been, who've been under 400 years of systemic slavery. I'm leading them into a new land. And uh, Moses, you are gonna be the guy to be able to go and do this and lead them out. It begins to work inside of him. This second act, that, I mean, that's the reason you know Moses, not because he was part Egyptian or, or raised in an Egyptian home. We see this, Im, this immense change in his life. David, similar thing, right? The, the opening story of David is... Um, that Samuel shows up at his house. This prophet guy named Samuel shows up at his house. He's got uh, several older brothers and they're, they're looking for the new king. And Samuel feels like God has told him that the next king of Israel is in this house. And he begins to go down the list, the line of, of all the brothers, starting from the oldest down to the youngest. He goes through 11 and then they, they, he realizes, um, I, don't, I, still think it's, I don't think it's one of these. Do you have any other sons? Well, yeah, we have one. He's out in the field. And he, then go get David. He brings him in, he anoints him. He says, you're going to be the next king. The problem is there's a current king. He doesn't know that you're going to be the next king. It's, uh, it's fine. It'll probably work out. It'll be fine. It goes south big time. And, and the brother, you can tell that David in that moment gets an anointed king. If you had 11 older brothers and you just got deemed as the king, I mean, you see this in the life of Joseph too in the Old Testament too. Like you would walk out of that room a little differently, wouldn't you? 
Like you've been beating me up my whole entire life. I have been the runt of the family and the runt has become the king. Y'all are in trouble. You know what I mean? Like this is not good news for you. This is great news for me. Yes, you're going to be related to the king, but you're also the one who used to slam my face in my bowl of Cheerios every morning. And so therefore, it's not going to be good for you. So anyways, that you can sense that. So then, then the story of David really goes silent. He has to like run from the king. He, he's in this hiding place. And the story of David that we know really comes years and years later, probably eight to 12 years after this story of this anointing thing takes place. There's a long period, probably longer than we're comfortable with in our life sometimes, between our first act, what God wants to do in us, and then what he's leading us to in terms of beginnings. Paul is the same thing. New Testament now. We know the Apostle Paul because he wrote tons of the New Testament. He wrote letters to churches. He was a church planner. The prehistory of Paul, part one of Paul's story, is he was anti-Christian. He was the guy who would go and persecute Christians. He's the guy who was rising and ascending the ladder of what it meant to be Jewish and all of the different things that provided value as an individual for that. And then he would go and persecute these Christians, find out where they were living, throw them in jail. And eventually he's, he's walking along this road one day and a bright light appears, knocks him off his mule and says, why are you persecuting me? And it's Jesus. And there's this life transformation. He has this like, really like honestly come to Jesus moment. We talk about come to Jesus moments one, once in a while. This is like a literally, like this is not figurative. This is come to Jesus moment. And Paul is forever changed, and he's different as a result of this. How is he different? I want to talk briefly, real quickly, what I think takes place in that in-between moment, the failure moment between Act 1 and Act 2 of your life, and the reason that you can approach new beginnings differently. Divine death, there's always a sense of divine destiny that comes as a result of these. Moses felt a sense of divine destiny, like this is what I'm supposed to do. It's so clear to me right now. Paul, Paul operated with such a conviction about reaching Gentiles, about starting the church. He did not get sidetracked with all of the different other things that could have sidetracked him. He was, when you read about the life of Paul, he was single-minded and passionate about what he did. There was a divine sense of destiny in him and then an abiding humility that comes as a result of it as well. Divine destiny, abiding humility. In the first act of almost all of these, I think of these scenarios and in my observation of life, people engage in the very beginning or in their initial beginnings with a sense of individuality and a sense of prospering myself and consumed with self. And it's not humility, it's a sense of pride. I'm gonna build this business um, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to graduate with honors. I'm going to be accepted into the school that I want to get into. They're going to be fighting for me to play there. And it's about kingdom of self at that point. And then what I think, what I've seen happen is they experience failure. And, and every once in a while, they'll come through on the other side and it's still about the same old things. And they find that, and again, nothing's changed. There's not a new approach to beginnings for them. They fall into the three common assumptions, the three myths. I, I know better this time. Got it. I get it. Here's what I did wrong. I was a jerk to everybody that I worked with. It's hard to start a business and your employees hate you. I just, I figured that out. 
I'm going to be less of a jerk this time, and I think it's going to work out. I mean, they're still going to work stupid hours, and I'm going to make way more than them. But you know what? I think I will send out Christmas cards. I'll jelly of the month. That's the solution at the end is some sort of, uh, I've learned, I'm more experienced this time around. I don't have time to wait. I need to get back in. I don't want to be 40 and 50, 60, and not have enough money to retire. I got to get back in right away, and, and I don't need to worry about this thing. And yet, when, when we look at Scripture, when I, when I read the stories of people who have seemed to take beginnings in a different way, like their, their second act, the way that they do it is so different is they've looked and they've done an evaluated experience on what they went through. They've come to grips with a divine destiny that's bigger than themselves and then bigger than the self-promotion that I often give myself. And they walk with inspired and abiding humility. Those are the kinds of people, that's the kind of person that I want to be and I want you to be. I want you to avoid... Um, the avoidable pains in life and the avoidable regrets. I want you to have be wise when it comes to the beginnings that you have. And I want you to walk with a divine destiny and abiding humility. Paul sums this up, this idea up in Romans chapter eight, verse 28. He, uh, this chapter, chapter eight is, um, is like this massive expose on what God is doing in the world. It has a very like, global, God is in control. God is sovereign, not only of our lives and of like the church, but like everything in creation is encapsulated in this. So he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't lack the power to be sovereign over the circumstances of the world. Nothing escapes his sovereignty. Nothing, nothing takes place that God's like, I just, my hands are tied. I really couldn't do anything about that. Or nothing, nothing is so great for him that he wishes he could do something, but he can't, right? That's the overarching message or theme of Romans chapter eight. And then this verse, and we know, who's we? Paul's writing to a group of Christians in Rome. He's writing to home teamers. He's not selling this as a, this is not a pitch point for people who don't believe in Christianity. Um, if you do this, um, then I promise that life will work out for you. That, that's how sometimes this verse is taken. Let me, let me nix that right away. That's not what's taking place here. P, Paul is writing to people who are already convinced, Roman Christians, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, according to his divine destiny. And the message that Paul is trying to get across here is, I, I'm not 100%, he didn't know these people. I don't know what it, exactly it is that you've been through. You are currently operating a church in the most pagan society. I mean, Paul's like, I don't even know what it would be like to live in the neighborhood of the empire with all of its different options in terms of religious and, 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 and forms of persecution along the way. I don't know exactly what you've been through, but here's what I do know. And here's what we do know. God can leverage purpose out of anything if you will allow him to. I don't know what kind of beginnings you've had that you've wasted or ruined, but here's what I do know. God is sovereign. 
He's over creation. He's over it all. He's not, uh, he doesn't feel like anything is out of his league or out of his reach or out of his ability to do something with. I don't know what it is that you're, you've gone through. I don't know what kind of baggage you're hanging on to that says, um, God, I want to do better, but I don't know how much you can do with, what, with who I am and what I'm bringing into this. And the message that Paul tries to illustrate here that I think is so crucial for us as we get beyond these three stupid myths, God can leverage purpose out of anything if you will allow him to. Allow him the opportunity to redeem that situation, to take something that's worthless and make it worth something. That's what redemption is. I'm gonna take this stupid little coupon that means nothing and I'm gonna get $3 off my craft singles. That's what I want. <laughs> All right? I take something that's nothing, I make it a value again. I don't care what kind of nothing you have in your life. God's promises, I can redeem even that so that you can approach beginnings in a healthy way with a divine sense of destiny and abiding humility. Let's pray. Father, this for us, I hope, is a, a chance for us to kind of like whet our appetite for more. Like we didn't really solve anything, but we got ourselves in that position where we're going, all right, there's, there's a hope, there's a freshness in me. There's, a, there's, there's um, a, a growing sense of an opportunity to do this better. And, and we, we live with constantly um, self-evaluation of, of trying to make sure the next time is better than the last time. And yet, this isn't luck. This isn't hoping for just better chances. This is resting our hopes in you instead, a God who is sovereign over our situation and powerful enough to do something about it and powerful enough to leverage whatever disappointment, whatever baggage we have uh, for your glory. So we pray that we be the type of people who begin to trust in a God like that. Give us the wisdom to see what this looks like for our individual lives and the courage to act on in your name. Amen.